Hello and welcome to Brokenomics. Now, in this episode, uh, we want to look at a absolutely broken system, of course, as we are want to do on Brokenomics, uh, the American political system. Now, I'm a tiny bit confused as to how it works, who's in charge, and um, where we're going from here. So I don't know the answers to those questions, but we have brought on experts on the subject. Aaron McIntyre, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, man. Pleasure. Great. Now, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and, of course, your upcoming book? Oh, thanks. Yeah, no, I uh, have a YouTube channel. I have a show over at Blaze TV podcast. All that's under the Oren McIntyre show. And I also have a book coming out soon called The Total State, where I delve into a lot about what we're going to be talking about here, which is what's happened with political power in the United States, why no one can seem to understand uh, what's going on, why all these checks and balances that were supposed to control power and liberal democracy have failed. All that is going to be in the total state. You can pre-order that now. Uh, uh, so, so two questions on that. When does that come out? And will you be voicing the audiobook yourself? Because I've got to say, I'm more of an audiobook man myself. Yeah, a lot of people are asking that, especially, obviously, since I do a lot of narrating my own essays with, with my show and everything. Uh, the book comes out on May 7th. The audiobook, is, as, as all of these things are with major publishers, is contingent on the first pass doing well. So paperbacks, ah. audiobooks, all these things are likely to come out as long as people, you know, we do have enough people buying the original book. So if you want to hear the audiobook, you start. might have to support the, the actual physical start, book. Start with the hardback then. Excellent. Will do. Exactly. So um, look, um, getting into the question of US political power, let, let's start with, with, a, with a nice, easy, soft question. You famously have a bet with um, Nima Pavani, the academic agent who came on Brokenomics a few episodes ago. Um, now, if, if I understand the bet correctly, AA believes that the ruling class is basically in control, um, that they act rationally, and that they understand that what they've done is they've set themselves up in opposition to the majority. They understand that that is effectively a probably the worst governing strategy that you could ever have. Um, and that ultimately, because they need the white boys to die in their wars they are rationally going to act to put the woke away. And you can decide, you, you can explain what, what your proposition in this bet is. Um, and, and I want to stay neutral in this because, of course, friends with both of you. Um, but all the same, I'd love to hear why you are comprehensively going to destroy Nima in this ridiculous bet that he's made with you. Yeah, I'm going to win for a very simple reason. I have looked into the eyes of these people. I know what the average shitlib believes. I've, I've talked with these people. I've worked with these people. I was, I was worked in many jobs where I had to spend all day with these people. I've looked deep into their eyes and I know they're true believers. Uh, Nima and I both agree about elite theory. We're, we're both believers in elite theory. We both, both use it to do a, a lot of our political analysis and we largely agree on political issues. There's really not that much space between us. We're, we're kind of hyping mm. this up for the fun of it, but, but there's not that much difference. The big difference between us it goes back to an old disagreement inside elite theory between uh, Gaetano Mosca and Vilfredo Pareto. Mosca believed uh, that the elites had to be guided by a ruling uh, story. They needed a political formula that they themselves bought into that legitimized their rule. And it wasn't just a noble lie in the platonic sense for the masses, but was something that they themselves had to also uh, go ahead and participate in if they were going to rule effectively. Pareto believed really and truly that everything was dictated top down. It's all just a contrivance 
for power. That's the only reason that any of these things exist. And so I'm kind of uh, I'm kind of repping the the Mosca position, and he's repping the Pareto uh, kind of idea. He believes that ultimately our leaders are rational, and ultimately that while they may have gone too far with wokeness, they might have indulged their their vanguard too much, they might have uh, given too much to their patronage network using this justification. Ultimately, they value power above ideology, and so they will course correct, uh, and, and they will pull back the wokeness. Now, I agree that that would be the smart thing to do. If our elites truly were 100% just rational and evil, they would they would do exactly what he says. However, I don't think that's the case. There are certainly many among them who recognize that this thing is going off the rails and would like to correct it. And we might see some of this. There's a natural cycle of ebb and flow. This is something, again, that Nima and I agree on, that you often see the winds of the left locked in in those moments when the conservatives come in and stop the craziness for a moment before we go back to sprinting leftward. However, I think ultimately our our elites have completely bought into their ruling formula. They truly believe in their political formula and the ideas of wokeness. And not only that, but I, along with Sam Francis, believe uh, as Sam Francis said, uh, believe that these the wokeness is essential to their ruling formula. It actually is critical to break down the bourgeoisie order that they were trying to remove before they go ahead and install kind of the fat, the final level of progressive managerial uh, control. And so I, I think the wokeness, instead of being a problem for the political formula, is actually critical to their their power process. And I think that's why ultimately uh, Nima's going to lose, not because he's wrong, you know, about about ninety percent of this, but the last ten percent he's wrong about is critical. Okay, so I mean, he is um, tweeting frantically, trying to trying to claw his way up that hill. It's, it's like the per capita mean of, of pushing uphill. Um, you know, he, he's trying to win a cigar instead. He, he would point to things. I mean, he's not here, but let me try and try and frame his argument. Um, for example, it, here in the UK, um, we've had the same issues as you had with military recruitment. It's fallen off a cliff, and that's largely driven by white recruitment going away. Just in the last few days, we've had. Um, um, a letter from several key generals saying that, you know, this wokeness and this DEI stuff is out of control. And the government very quickly responded with, yes, OK, we're going to look at this and we're, we're going to put the DEI stuff away. Uh, we've seen across Europe, we've seen multiple farmers protests. And now the EU has come out and said, yeah, we're going to drop the nitrogen stuff. We're going to we're going to tone down our assault on the farmers and the people who are producing food. So he can point to lots of examples. So so perhaps it'd be helpful if you just told you know, what what are those key tenants? of the regime um, and, and you know why why is it that they can't at least message their way out of it so one of the things that San Francis pointed out is that we often think that let's say in the in the 60s when the new left started to show itself that it was the left vanguard versus the establishment but that's not actually what was happening the goals of the progressive movement or the woke movement as people might want to use it today, uh, we're always in line, actually, with the advancement of the managerial regime. In both cases, they wanted to dismantle the existing order. They wanted to remove the current social order. And the best way to do that, it turned out, was actually the homogenization of culture, turning everything into a hedonist, hedonistic and cosmopolitan uh, kind of 
gray goo was the key to doing that. And that's why they advanced different ideas about the need to destroy the family, destroy the church, destroy the culture, break down uh, communities and identities. It was important that everyone ends up having exactly the same approach. This is why they're running transgender ads for Starbucks in India right now. It's not because these things are popular. It's because these things are critical for removing the social barriers that uh, that keep managerial um, managerial tactics from being applied to the specific cultures. Culture specificity and restriction, these things are a problem when you want to scale up your control of an entire, well, globe at this point. It's world domination, quite literally, is the plan. Mm. And in order to do that, you need to go ahead and break down all the cultural particularities. If you have deeply religious people with like seven kids, then they may not want their wife to work, which won't bring down the cost of labor that would... Well, you know, maybe they don't want to uh, put forward the next, uh, you know, puberty blocking drug because that specifically violates parts of their belief system, which will inhibit the ability of the regime to make these people lifelong clients of the pharmaceutical industry. And so each one of these particular cultural hiccups and, in, in, you know, uh, uh, I or each of these particular cultural uh, formalities require hiccups in the regime that make it less efficient. And the point of all managerial regimes is to become as efficient as possible in order to scale up their control of society. So I don't think that they can put away everything that AA is talking about. I agree with him that they're going to try, right? It's not that they won't try. Right. It's not that we won't see some of this stuff get mediated for moments. But overall, we continue to see this. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. It was. It really was not that long ago last year when Joe Biden, after a massacre at a Christian school in Tennessee yes. where children were killed, adults were killed, called trans kids the soul of the nation, where instead of mourning the deaths of these children, we had trans activists storm these state capitals, take over control of them, just like did January 6th, but they didn't go to jail. Uh, and obviously the January 6th people did. Like, it is very clear that the wokeness is not going away. We just had the you know the Black National Anthem at the Super Bowl here in America, which is probably our widest cultural event, no matter how what you think that says about America. That's just the case. These things might get normalized. We might start thinking of puberty blockers and the Black National Anthem as just part of life. But that's not the woke going away. That's the woke winning. Mm, okay, it's getting cemented. Okay. Let's let's change angles slightly. Who's running the U.S.? That's a great question. <laughs> formally, uh, formally, obviously, Joe Biden and is supposed to be our executive. Yeah. The weird thing that's happening in the United States right now is it, it, it feels you know what's that uh, that famous like I spent all year on writing this down and then he just tweeted it out and it feels like that's what's happening. Right now, I wrote a whole book about this. Obviously, I'm working off the, the work of uh, other great people who, who have talked about kind of the, the managerial regime, the rise of the managerial elite and what's happening, uh, why, why this kind of uh, woke uh, distributed oligarchy is, is running the United States. And now it's just so obvious to everybody, it almost feels kind of comical to have to explain it at this point. Everybody looks at Joe Biden. And everybody knows that there's no way this man is running the United mm. States. And not in the way that most presidents don't have direct, total executive control. That's been true of many presidents. That's nothing new. But it was so clear from the very beginning of Joe Biden's election that his mental faculties were just not there. Uh, Donald Trump is old. They're both too old to be president. We need to stop electing old people. However, 
it's very clear that there's a difference and that Joe Biden is at a level of senility that just makes it completely impossible for him to operate, you know, a car, much less the United States of America. And so we all know that. I mean, literally, we just had a special prosecutor say, I can't put this guy up on charges because he's too old and senile and no jury would convict him because it's just clear he has no, no idea what he's doing. So it's it's so clear to everyone, even Democrats can't pretend that Joe Biden is actually running the United States. And yet at the same time, while formally we're supposed to care very much about our Constitution and the, the separation of powers and the masterful way the Constitution creates a, a functioning government in the United States, it's very clear that actually none of the people listed in the Constitution are in charge. And so the question becomes, who is? And that's the beauty of this whole thing, right? That's the, the way that democracy obfuscates who's actually in charge because formally Joe Biden, right? That's the formal uh, definition of the executive office. But in actuality, no one knows who's in charge. We can speculate is, you know, Victoria Newland, is, is it Obama behind the scenes? Is it, you know, the chief of staff? So it was like, who is in charge here? We, we're not exactly sure. Is it Mayorkas? We, we, we don't know. We know there's probably like kind of an oligarchy, a distributed understanding mm. of, of, you know, a rule of 30, you know, maybe, uh, you know, r running this whole thing. But no one knows for sure. And that's the beauty of the system. Everyone knows Joe Biden's not in charge, but he's the only one that they wave in front of the public. And so whenever something bad happens, it's Bidenomics, it's Biden's failure, it's Biden's war. But of course, it's not Joe Biden at all. It's all these other people who are ruling behind Joe Biden as a puppet, and none of them can be held accountable because none of, none of them formally hold the power. Yeah. So, I mean, th this question came up, of course, didn't it, in the Tucker and Putin interview where Tucker asked the same question, who's running the US? And, and Putin basically gave the same answer as you, that he doesn't know. But he did hint heavily um, that when whenever he wants to speak to somebody and get anything done, he just goes straight through to the intelligence services. And I'm kind, I kind of agree with you that it must be some sort of collection of special interest groups. It must be a combination of banking interest groups um, and the intelligence services, and and they're sort of you know pulling this all together. And and, and of course, as you referenced the the Obama interview that he gave, uh, where he basically said that. He would love a third term, but he knows that he can't run for one. But if he could put up a front man, and he literally said a front man, um, and I could just be there with an earpiece um, telling him what to do, that would make sense. And of course, we do see that um, Obama does spend most of his time in Washington. He's, he's the first, as I understand it, uh, president to stay in Washington after the end of his term. Um, and he is regularly holding court with people going in and out. So, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll put this to you. I, mean, I, I, I kind of think that the last time the US had a president, the last time the US was genuinely under control of civilian leadership, as in, as in the person of the president, was probably George Bush Sr., and that was only because he was a former CIA chief and therefore he I was, was say, is he, yeah, head of the CIA, he was sufficiently yeah. one of them that a civilian could be allowed to run it. But that's probably the last time that happens. Yeah, I mean, it's really difficult. The, the weird thing about the United States is that we pretend that we've been one continuous republic since the founding of the United States. But that's obviously not true. In fact, it's not even formally true in the constitutional sense. We began with the Articles of Confederation. The Articles of Confederation were abolished by the Constitution, even though there was never a formal vote to get rid of the Articles of Confederation. Obviously, the way that the United States was run pre and post-Civil War, post the 14th Amendment specifically, is radically different 
Uh, obviously, again, when we look at, say, the FDR regime that radically transforms the way the United States ran and yet again in the civil rights era. And so really what we've had is four or five different republics in the United States. We just don't number them the way that France does. And because of that, there's this confusion over how the government actually runs. At moments, we've had an imperial presidency. If you look at FDR, if you look at Lincoln, these are executives who truly act with the singular power that is you know, given to them and often more by the Constitution. However, that's not usually how the United States works. At other times, it seems to shift its power to the Congress, to the judiciary, sometimes to outside interests. At this point, I think it's very clear that uh, what we have is, is a distributed network that moves both through the public and the private sector. And so it's very confusing for people because they're taught in American civics class, you know, the American history classes, that the government is just always been the same, that these are the articles of the Constitution. This is what's written down on paper. This is how this works. But you guys don't have a written constitution. And there's, you know, there, there are ups and downs to that. But one of the upsides is that you understand that the Constitution is often what can you can get away with. It's the tradition that is uh, kind of uh, the continu traditional continuity between different generations. If a generation doesn't guard against the alteration of an unwritten constitution, it will be changed. Because we have it written down in America, we often think that that safeguards us from that particular fun phenomenon, but it doesn't. And the illusion that it does is often what keeps Americans from understanding where power really lies. And I like your analogy of it being a distributed network of, of individuals. And it kind of reminds me of what they used to say about the internet, about how the internet could survive a nuclear attack because it was so distributed that a, a part of it would always function. So if there was some sort of... Um, Trump-style nuclear attack on the political system. Because, okay, look, Trump, he wasn't effective in his first term because he went into it thinking that the president gave orders and then the, um, the mechanisms beneath him obeyed those orders. And he was disabused of that notion when he came in. Let's say he comes in for a second term and he now understands um, what he's up against. And he's been spending these last four years scheming out how to take control of these beasts and how to do something about it. Is it even possible? So that's a great question. And the answer is maybe. The, the Project 2025 guys understand the problem at this point. I've had guys like Andrew Kloster on my show who used to do the staffing for the White House or part of that. And they understand the, the issue that came up. It's been very, very clear to them why they ended up in the situation that they're in. And so that's why they started that Schedule F thing that the uh, you know the media freaked out about uh, the entire time to make it easier to fire bureaucrats they understood that they needed to gut the deep state the deep state was real that it was uh, in in control of the power in washington and that if you couldn't clean it all out then you just weren't going to be able to govern they, they kind of fully grasped that problem which is unfortunate that they figured out that out at the end of trump's first term but better late than never and so the, the Project 2025 guys are aware of this problem. They are working. There are people working to build up a, a, you know, kind of staff up a based bureaucratic army, you know, to fill in these, these uh, you know, different offices and make it easier to fire these people. And in some ways, yes, like I think that would be a big improvement. I think in some cases you just need to be ready to crush some of these departments. Like you need to dismantle the FBI. The FBI mm. needs to go. It is so thoroughly corrupt. It is so obviously the Praetorian Guard of the United States. Whoever can bribe you know, the intelligence community and the, the domestic police service at this point can control the United States. That's a terrifying thing to say about your own country that's supposed to be like this first world 
uh, you know, protector of, of law and order, but yeah. that's just true at this well, point. Well, they're just the American obvious. Gestapo, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, there's there's a little extra, there's a little extra, you know, uh, 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 wrapping on it. They're not quite as obvious, uh, maybe, as the Soviet, but it, it doesn't matter. Like, they, they obviously are doing uh, a very similar job in places that we saw, like Nazi Germany and, and Soviet Russia. And so they, they need to go. They need to dismantle. Their job can be picked up by somebody else. You can create a new service, something. You need to own it completely. If you can start the, uh, you know, if you can start the Space Force and under Trump, you can certainly start a new domestic police agency. And so you need to dismantle that and start from, from the bottom up. So you can make big steps like that. But I think you still need, and this is really important in the United States, one thing we really have going for us is our history, our deep history as a regional country, as a federated power. You know, we started our history as a confederation, uh, and we always had this focus of power in the states. And while the the 10th Amendment has been dead for a long time, and much of that has been stripped out by the dependence on federal funding and things like this, there is still the mechanism of governance that can recapture. There is still a skeleton of state structure. And we can see this by the way that Ron DeSantis was able to use his power in Florida. Recently, Greg Abbott has flexed the, his muscle in this area, pointing out the invasion clause in Article One of the Constitution for his reasoning as to why he should be able to control his own border if the United States military or the uh, Border Patrol are not going to do it. And so these mechanisms still exist in the United States. And I think if there's a concerted effort between uh, the, these governors using their power and a dismantling of the federal bureaucracy inside Washington simultaneously, there is a chance, but it still would be very difficult. And you have to have a high level of coordination. You can't just tumble in there like Trump did last time and start giving out orders. You need a, a strong, concise plan with very intelligent people who understand the nature of the problem. I think you've got more of that than you did last time, but it's still an uphill struggle. Because I mean, there are there are things that concern me about Trump, um, and, and and this came this manifests for me quite nicely with the juxtaposition against somebody like RFK, because what RFK was talking about in a lot of his stuff is he he doesn't talk about personalities in the same way Trump does. RFK has been talking about disconnecting the feed tubes that supply the problem bits of the of the regime. So he wants to go after the um, the regulatory state that enables the the big farmer to do what they do. He wants to go up again. He wants to go against um, you know, the mechanisms that allow the military industrial complex to do what they do by disconnecting the sort of feed tubes that come through the CIA and their sort of their, their funnel for war. What concerns me about Trump is he always talks in terms of personality, and Vivek kind of does this as well if, if, if he ends up being the VP. They just talk, okay, we're going to take these people and we're going to introduce them to their pension seven years early. Um, and then they're all going to go and get lobbying jobs or they're going to go on the board of these companies. Do you think he understands that you need a system change? And does he understand where where to make those tweaks to disconnect those feed tubes rather than just going in and firing people? No, I don't think Trump does. But I think that he might have people advising him who do. And I think, unfortunately, yeah. that's about the best we can get at this point. Look, Donald Trump is a deeply flawed candidate. He is far from what most people want him to be. I think that was made very clear in his first term. A lot of people got very angry at me because I pointed out that he was going to be elected no matter what. And so there's no point for DeSantis to run. A lot of DeSantis supporters became very angry at me saying, how could you say that when all these things Trump did? And I said, yes, every, every criticism you're going to have of Trump is correct. It also doesn't matter because he's going to win. 
and I'm I'm a political realist. I work in the world of political realities, not some fantasy about what I want to happen. And so there's just no reason you might as well keep your powder dry and be the most valuable player you can in the position you have rather than try to force something through that's not going to happen. So like, yes, Trump is deeply flawed. He obviously looks at, uh, you know, personnel, personalities. This makes him very good at what he does, right? There, a lot of people hate Trump at a distance, but the thing you find out almost uniformly is no one hates Trump up close. It seems like everyone who actually knows him, even people who should hate him, seem to love him. Like he just engenders a lot of personal loyalty. And you can see this from the way that his voters react as well. I live in a very red part of Florida. I am in the reddest of the reddest part of Florida. And Trump flags never came down in my area. There are people whose entire houses, as gauche as it is, are decorated entirely in down with Joe Biden. I'm a Trump you know, fighter for life. Sounds good. This is what I tried to explain to people and they just didn't understand it. Like they don't understand this part of Trump. And so Trump is never going to be the technocrat. That is never going to be his strength. However, he can compel the kind of loyalty and the kind of movement that can put effective people in positions of power that will actually allow them to make this change. But that's only if he gets the right people. Obviously, if he's sticking John Bolton's into his cabinet, then it doesn't matter. And I kind of want to pick up on something you mentioned a little bit earlier. The um, I wondered if it was a modern day assassination carried out on Joe Biden last week, because it appeared that parts of of his own Democrat network um, basically put this hit out on him where they said, you know, we're, we're not going to prosecute you because you're too senile. Um, it, it looks like there is significant fighting taking place behind the scenes. So what was that? Was was that just a mix-up or was that an assassination attempt? Um, what, what's going on? Yeah, and this kind of comes back to AA and I's difference, right? So for AA, everything is coordinated, right? Because these people are in charge, they're competent, they're making active decisions. Uh, and, and they are in charge, obviously. I'm not, I, again, I am an elite theorist. I believe that the elites drive political power. I think that populism is largely uh, an illusion. You know, his, his book, The Populist Delusion, is correct in many ways. So I'm, I'm with him on a lot of this. However, uh, ultimately, I am with Curtis Yarvin, who said that there's no one at the helm. The, 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 the terrible truth is simply that there's a bunch of people who get to stand uh, kind of at the wheel for the moment and look like they're guiding the ship. But ultimately, everyone is subject to the story. The story is actually what is guiding everything at the moment. And so... A lot of people look at what happened and they're like, well, this is a coordinated effort to take out Joe Biden. And maybe it is. Maybe somewhere, you know, the the cabal has, you know, given the order and and this is going down. But I'm doubtful of that. In fact, I'm doubtful that they'll even remove Joe Biden. I mean, if they were going to remove him, now would be the time, right? Obviously, like this is very clearly a, a perfect reason to remove a guy like this from the ticket. This is where you slot in the person that you want. They don't have to go through the primary process because we're already too far through this like you just you just bring in the heavy hitter right the guy you really wanted if there's some mastermind like dick cheney you know was supposed to be behind george bush this is your moment to just slide him in without having to get him elected right it's a perfect moment i think it was very clear that kamala harris was supposed to be the heir right she she checks all the all the boxes and everything but once she got into office it became clear that she's just an idiot like she's just terrible at her job (laughs) she can't she can't do anything you, and, and, and like she's so unlikable that you can't even put her like say what you want about Joe Biden. 
But the reason he was in the Senate for so long, the reason that he had the level of uh, political longevity they had was that he was a he was a able politician. He was a likable mm. guy for the most part. And so he, he kind of came in and said, Uncle Joe's going to return you to normalcy. And even though he had lost a step and it was clear that maybe, you know, the, the eleva- elevator wasn't going all the way to the top anymore, he was still somebody that was, you know, the average electorate could get behind. Kamala Harris is not. And so they just don't have anyone hand this torch to. A lot of people speculate Gavin Newsom or somebody like that. But I don't know, man. I, I just don't mm. see it. And so I don't know that there's a coordinated attack to remove Joe Biden. Maybe he simply will become just too obvious. But, I mean, could he become more obviously senile than he is right now? How, how, what does that even look like? Yeah. He just starts defecating on stage. Like, I don't know. What's, what really, I mean, literally, yeah. what is left? The man doesn't know when his son died. He doesn't know when he was vice president. He, I mean, there, there's not a whole lot of ground when, when left. He, he doesn't understand that Gaza does not border Mexico or that France's <laughs> meter on yeah, being he, dead yeah, for 20 Egypt years. and Mexico are different countries. Yeah. Like, this is a man who, who just do, cannot do the job, and it is as clear as it can be to everyone. And it seems, as far as I can tell, that the Democrats intend to keep him on the ticket. And I think that can the only re- way that can be the case is simply that there is just no one at the helm and that everyone is just riding this, this tiger and they don't know what to do. And so they're just moving forward. The momentum of the system is the only thing left. Everyone is simply too incompetent or too scared to actually take any kind of power. And I think that really is the case. I, I think that's scarier that we're, that we're living. Yeah. Oh, in, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We're, li- we're living in a world because at, at least with Russia, you, you know that there is one guy in charge. And you look at various countries around the world, and you can see, okay, yeah, whether I like that person or not, there is somebody in charge. But it, it is it is increasingly evident that there is no one in charge, like you say, and it's and it's is even worse. Let me circle back to something you also said that was quite interesting. You talked about various stages of um, the of of of, of the um, of the republic and how it sort of shifted through through sort of categories. Um, this is something that. I get picked up on a lot when I do segments covering America. Um, there, there's always that guy in the in the comments who comes up and says, "No, Dan doesn't understand. We are a constitutional republic. Don't you get it? You know, uh. it's different here." <laughs> um, and look, I, I, I have this broad theory that I think that the um, the Europeans are an autocracy posing as a democracy. And the U.S. is something like a democracy posing as a constitutional republic, rapidly descending into an autocracy. I mean, who's who's right on this? How does it actually work? So, again, the the thing I think that the in America we didn't have a king and we didn't have an aristocracy, and mm. because we never had defined social classes, egalitarianism is coded deeply into the DNA of the United States. We just we don't understand. That's why we have this crude understanding of class as being just a money thing, right? Like you it's don't, not, like it's very yeah. difficult, right? I know, right? But 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 yeah. the, the in America the two hundred the, the the plumber making two hundred thousand dollars a year doesn't understand why the barista with the you know uh, philosophy degree is looking down on him. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.